there was an influencer who became insanely popular. Everybody started following him. Then one day, he stood up for something he believed in. People got angry. The establishment called him an extremist, said he shouldn't be allowed to share his views. They would stop at nothing to shut him up. So they did what they had to do. They nailed him to a cross. This is an ad from the He Gets Us campaign. Maybe you've seen some of these commercials on TV lately. Now, I'm going to admit to you that normally when I see uh, churchy commercials or, or uh, churchy signs, like, I, I find most of them to be quite a bit cringy. Like, I, I don't know how many people have ever been converted by road sign or something like that. And, and, and honestly, some of the puns that are even on church signs a lot of times, like, I, I, I never find them funny. I don't know if Christians are not allowed to be funny, and that's why the pun signs are not funny, but I don't know. I just cringe a little bit, and sometimes I wonder if some of those things are trying to, to, do, um, to do good, but maybe they're doing a bit more harm sometimes than they're doing good. And then, and then I saw the He Gets Us campaign, I saw some of these commercials, and I thought, okay, let me, let me look into this a little bit, because I know people are going to start asking me, and um, I got to tell you, I... I've, I've been pretty impressed. And, and it matters to me that, like, the messages that are out there are biblical. It matters to me that the messages that are out there, that they reflect Jesus well. This is super, super important that we never let our message distract from the gospel of what Jesus was trying to do. And so uh, we have partnered with them. We've partnered with them because what they've done is they've said to churches like us, you know, these commercials are going to be out there. In fact, there's going to be a Super Bowl commercial, uh, one of the most expensive Super Bowl commercials this year. And uh, they, they put this campaign out, and they've, what they've done is since we've partnered with them, they've said, yeah, you can use all our videos for free at your church. You can use all our resources and community group questions. And that might be a great thing for any of you in a community group. What you can do is you know, watch an ad and like, reflect on it and say, what do you think this brings out? And what do you think your unchurched friends uh, would say about this? Because this is, this is the important thing about this series and why we're starting the new year with this series. These are going to be out there and people are going to see them. And what's really important to me is like when you're watching the Super Bowl and you're eating your chicken wings and, and you're going to be eating your chicken wings and your friend's going to say to you, oh, hey, you're, you're a Christian, right? Like, uh, what do you think of that? And you're going to have, you're going to like wipe your mouth and like, you're going to have to give an answer. And, and I know you want to give a good answer and you want to give a compassionate answer, but you, you want to make sure that you're reflecting well on it. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to reflect on each week one of these different commercials and just kind of see what God might be doing. This is a $100 million ad campaign that they've launched. It's blanketing cities on signs as well and on the web. What they're trying to do is they're trying to redeem the name of Jesus by some of the damage that's been done, if we're being honest, by us, by his followers, by the church. Uh, billboards with messages like, Jesus let his hair down too. Or, Jesus went all in too. They've been posted in major markets like New York City and Las Vegas. And these, these ads, these videos about Jesus as a rebel, or Jesus as an activist, or Jesus of a, 
a host of a party and things like that, they've been viewed already more than 300 million times. And this is as of just a few weeks ago. And it's just going to ramp up more and more and more. It's funded by a Christian foundation that's based in Kansas. And it's going to really expand in the next few months, all leading up to the Super Bowl ad. What the organizers are hoping will happen is that there will be a movement of people who want to tell a better story about Jesus. The true story of Jesus. A biblical message about Jesus. And that we would also be motivated to act like Jesus. Their goal is to give voice to the pent-up energy of like-minded Jesus followers. Those of us who are in the pews, some people who are not in the pews, uh, who are ready to reclaim his name. Because we've seen how Jesus' name is often used to judge people and abuse people and harm people and, and divide people. And we don't want that to be the case. We want people to see Jesus as the Savior and Lord of the world. Uh, the organizers, when they were talking to churches, these are some of the things that they gave to us. Like, here's a quote by pastor and author uh, Albert Tate. They, they've given this to the church just so we like, fully understand what's going on. Uh, pastor Tate says, the landscape of faith, especially the political landscape, it's become so toxic and abusive over recent years that we are just weary. Because of this, I worry that many Christians have taken our cues from culture rather than Christ. So that when it comes to how we live our faith at the table, we look less and less like our father. Or this quote from Andy Stanley, Andy's pastor of a big church in Atlanta. He says, until we let go of our infatuation with winning, we'll continue to be divided. We'll continue responding to culture and change as if we have no choice but to play by the rules of the kingdoms of this world. Consequently, we will continue to be used and leveraged and ultimately ignored. And right now, the church is getting ignored, and this is such a shame. Even going back to the time of World War II, C.S. Lewis caught on that this was happening in culture. He writes about these kinds of things. You can even see it in Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, what, what he was trying to do, what was C.S. trying to do in Chronicles of Nar Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Retell the Christian story in an unexpected, innovative, and even confounding way so that you could strike home at the hearts and minds of people who are close to the gospel. And we know that the Chronicles of Narnia, it carries so much theological, ethical, and imaginative weight buried within a children's story. Like, take, for example, these quotes about meeting Aslan in The Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. It says, Aslan's a lion. The lion, the great lion. And Susan responds, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's a king, I tell you. Mr. Tumnus adds, he's wild, you know. Not a tame lion. Sometimes we forget. Jesus is a lamb. He's also the lion, the king of Judah. The power of God is real. And C.S. Lewis starts to explore this in his books, but 
he also warns us about a number of things. Like, number one, how can we retell the greatest love story of all time? Because that's what it is. The gospel is the greatest love story of all. Because God loves us despite everything we've done and every mistake that we have, God still wants to win us back. It's the greatest love story of all time. In his books, C.S. Lewis addresses a number of things, and he calls them the five watchful dragons of our culture. This is, this is how the culture can get its hooks in us, how it can mess us up. Like, number one, the current culture will lead us to polarization. It'll divide us as right and left, and right and left will be police. People will even interpret love as reserved for our tribe. However, you're Christians, you're not allowed to do that, are you? You're not allowed to have a tribe that you only love. You're, you're, you're only allowed to love everybody. They will also, the dragons will, will catch us up with commercialization. Our attention is going to be bought and sold. People interpret even love as a ploy to sell something. He continues, there's politicization that will happen. When Christians become more devoted to political parties and leaders, people see just another lobby group when they look at the church. Or abuse. When Christians protect or excuse abuses by their leaders, people just see another corrupt and self-interested institution. Or moralism. When Christians demand outward conformity with little care or empathy, people see just another legalistic community. We can become like the moralistic police for the world, telling everybody how to behave, and all at the same time, I know none of you can behave anyways. It's so dangerous. Why would people follow our ways when they haven't even met our God? How would people respect and honor the Bible if they've never read the Bible. So how can Christians tell the gospel in ways that steal past this, these watchful dragons? How can we make sure that the gospel doesn't get hung up by these things? We got to do three things. We got to shift the perspective. We have to shift the purpose. And we have to shift the need. And shift the need is really, really important. And it's a part of this ad campaign. The He Gets Us campaign originated from the conviction that our culture needs to recognize that Jesus understands and empathizes with our struggles. Because people long to be seen and known and joined. And in Jesus, we find the full expression of God entering into our world. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so important. And so some of the different topics that you'll see addressed are some of the key things that are going to come up. For example, these themes that speak to what our culture is longing for. Is that I, Jesus gets us. He identifies with us. Like, Jesus was outraged. We live in an outraged culture. Jesus was outraged. The question is, what was he outraged with? Jesus got canceled. He was wrongly judged. He struggled. He knows what it's like to be alone. He let his hair down. He was a refugee. He got typecast. The, the campaign is trying to rebrand Jesus. And we, the church, we know we have a credibility problem. We know that people don't see us the way that we want to be seen. When they think of the church, they don't think we're the hope of the world. 
but God says we're supposed to be. The hope is that if we put the spotlight back on Jesus, instead of making points, if we point to Jesus, then hopefully, perhaps, faith can have a resurgence. And by the way, the Bible says that faith can and will have a resurgence. And it calls on us to be a part of that, to be a part of that. As a Christian, you have no right but to be optimistic about the future of the faith. God calls you then to be a part of it. And I'm all for it. And that's why we're going to look at this campaign. I want to introduce the video now that, that we're going to look at uh, called Family Matters. Yes, even Jesus had strained relationships. There was a family. They played together and laughed together. But they weren't completely alike. And as they grew older, their opinions widened and they distanced from each other. Conversations became heated. Reunions became more and more uncomfortable. They thought they were made for each other. One thinking of one another. Brother aligned against sister. Never thinking just for one second. Birthdays were ignored. Gatherings stopped. Because each had to be right. We don't want that. Oh no. We don't want that. We don't want that. We don't want Mark chapter 3. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus had family strains as well. God created family. He created us, and he placed us in families. It's his deal. It was his idea to have families. You were placed in your family by a sovereign God. None of us had a choice in it, did we? None of us asked to be born, and none of us asked for a, a particular family to be placed into. If God did ask, you'd probably answer, ah, how about the Buffett family? And God would say, Jimmy Buffett? 
And you would say, well, it sounds kind of fun, and he's right. I mean, it is 5 o'clock somewhere, but no, God, I, w- I was thinking like a-, a home with a little bit more cheddar, like uh, as in cheddar, I mean like yachts, like the Warren Buffett family. See, even if we could choose the family we were born into, we'd, we'd probably choose for all the wrong reasons. So whether your family is small or large, whether you have two parents or you have you have one parent, whether you have a lot of siblings or, or you were an only child, whether you were adopted or a foster child, God is sovereign over your life and over families. He created the family unit on purpose. And what was that purpose? Well, in Genesis 2, it is not good for us to be alone, he tells us, because family matters. Biological families matter. And when that doesn't function properly, adopted families matter. And foster families matter. I think that's why one of the top ways that the New Testament talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ, it describes the gospel over and over again as adoption. You're adopted into the family of God. It's not just the the family you're born into, it's the family that chose you. The the family that chose to care for you, that chose to love you. And the gospel is God choosing us, not because we earned it or because God had to. No, adoptive families don't have to. They choose to, just like God chose you because he loves you and he wants to care for you. So family matters to God. But at the same time, we all have family matters that we got to work through, don't we? Because sin gets in the way and selfishness gets in the way. Our individual selfishness, just it gets in the way of the family working the best it can. And addiction can get in the way. Stress can get in the way and poverty and dysfunction. And every family has some dysfunction. Don't let anybody tell you different. I have dysfunction because my parents had dysfunction, and my parents had dysfunction because their parents had dysfunction, and it's true of all of us. Eve and Adam, the first parents, they had dysfunction. But here's the good news. Jesus gets it. He went through it. He had strained relationships with his loved ones. He began to gain popularity. He was speaking to larger and larger crowds, and his own family came to take custody of him. Like they wanted to grab him, take him home, and maybe, maybe lock him inside for a little bit because he's getting a little too wild out there. They were very concerned with either the direction of his ministry or the scale of his ministry. But even when they disagreed with him, Jesus didn't just push them away, and he certainly didn't get defensive. No, Jesus doubled down. He was here on a mission. And he wasn't going to let anything or anyone distract him from why he was here. Instead, he was looking to restore relationships, but in a healthy way. In some of his last recorded words, for example, as he died, Jesus asked a close friend to take care of his mother, and he asked his mother to care for his friend. Jesus understood relationships are messy, but he also understood that they could be forgiven and they could be restored. 
his closest ones, like even his family and his friends, they didn't always get it, but he wanted to be restored with them. He knew people close to him were more important than the differences or the pride that any of them might have. So he wanted to look past those differences. He wanted to look past personal pride because those people were important to him. Think about this. In our story, Jesus is casting out demons out of people, which by all appearances has to be a good thing. It's a great thing. These people are suffering. Everybody around them thinks they've been insane for years. They're suffering from this possession. And suddenly there's a crowd. I mean, it's growing and growing because he's, he's restoring people's lives. He's saving people's lives. And that's why that crowd is just getting bigger and bigger. And the Pharisees, their reaction is to accuse him of being possessed by the devil. Which at this point, we've kind of come to expect, right? Because the Pharisees never get it. They're just religious experts who if you don't do things their way, they just judge everyone else. And they certainly don't like Jesus because Jesus pushes against their agenda. He doesn't like their legalistic tendencies. He doesn't like their approach to people. He doesn't like the fact that they think they're better than everyone else. And so Jesus rubs them wrong. See, to the Pharisees, if they can't get the credit, nobody can get the credit. But what's worse is that his own family also came and they wanted to take custody of him. Because for us, it's one thing for the Pharisees not to get it, but his even his own brothers don't get it. And what's worse, his mother, Mary, doesn't get it. The one that the angel Gabriel spoke to, the one who had a virgin birth, the one that the shepherds and the magi met with, the one who had to take her son and escape to Egypt because Herod was trying to kill him, even Mary doesn't get it. She's not on board, at least not yet and not fully. She's not on board. And that's why Jesus says, Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. But Jesus, you can't, you cannot divorce your family. Blood is thicker than water, we say. Jesus, he's not comparing blood and water. He's comparing blood and his blood from the cross. Because he knows that his blood from the cross redefines family. It expands family. Jesus has a larger definition of family than we do. Family matters. It's just that Jesus defines family so much more broader than we often do. It's, it's always frustrating when people, we say, can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, the idea is that we become so wrapped up in one thing that we lose focus on the larger picture of what's really going on. Like, sometimes this can be funny. Like, if you're watching a TV show, and there's a guy who's obsessing about putting on his tie in front of the mirror, and he can't get the knot right, but he's got to get the knot perfectly right. And, and then he starts to work on the dimple, and he's just working on it over and over and over again until finally it's right. And you can just see he just exhales like, oh, thank goodness. 
And then he, he can walk outside proudly and he, he, feels, he feels like he looks really good and he, he forgets to check that he left his pants inside. <laughs> like, he's missing the forest because he's focused on the tree that's staring him in the, mur- the mirror. I mean, viewed from the right angle, something like this has happened to the religious authorities and it's happened to Jesus' family too. His family's been following him in a literal sense, but not in the more important sense of following him. We're talking about discipleship. They are more like stalking him to figure out what's going on instead of following him to learn from him, following him to grow, to be more like him, which is what he means when he says, come and follow me. See, the result of the kind of following they're doing is a dire conclusion. They, they, they conclude Jesus is out of his mind. He's become a family embarrassment, a public spectacle. And we just need to whisk him out of sight. They want to take Jesus home. They want to put Jesus to bed. They want to keep him quiet for a while. Like, stop all this talk about casting out demons and a kingdom of your father in heaven, Jesus. we should probably give the family a little bit of a break, right? Nobody else has had to deal with having the Son of God as your brother. But still, to look at Jesus and everything that he's done and to chalk it up as delusional or incorrect or incoherent, that's a pretty bad thing to do. You're really missing the forest if you do that. But we do the same thing. And we pick and choose which of Jesus' words we're willing to follow and which of his words we might say, well, that's not so relevant for life today. But he hasn't given us that option to decide on our own. His family was so distracted by what they couldn't understand, they missed out on what he was really here to do. Back in the Soviet Union, years ago, The Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, used to tell of a time where there was so much poverty that petty theft went rampant everywhere in the Soviet Union. Everybody was stealing, and they all thought it was justified. It became so bad that he ended up having to use the authorities to put guards at all the factories to make sure that when people left a factory, they didn't just steal the stuff from the factory. There was a timberworks factory in Leningrad, and the guard who was assigned there, he knew the workers really well. Well, he had to know them well because he had to spy on them all the time to make sure that they never stole anything. One evening, a, a man, a worker there named Peter Petrovic, uh, he came out with a wheelbarrow, and on the wheelbarrow, there was a great bulky sack with, uh, it, it just it looked really suspicious to the guard. And so the guard stopped him and said, all right, Peter. What have you got in there? Oh, it's just sawdust and shavings, Petrovic replied. Come on, the guard said. I wasn't born yesterday. Tip it out. And he tipped out the bag, and it was just sawdust and shavings. So he was allowed to put it all back in again and and to leave. But the same thing happened every night of the week and every night of the week. And finally, the guard is just getting so frustrated 
And his curiosity overcame him. And he said, Petrovic, stop, stop, stop one day. Look, I know you. Just tell me what you're smuggling out of here. I'll let you go. And Peter looked at him and said, wheelbarrows, my friend. Wheelbarrows. Because you can get so distracted by what's in the sack, you can miss what's actually going on. See, Jesus, he gets it. He understands that sometimes people don't get you. Because they often didn't get him, including his own family. See, Jesus wasn't here to be a good person. He wasn't here to be a spiritual guide. He wasn't here to be a good teacher. He came here to destroy death. He came here to take on evil once and for all. When Jesus would announce to his disciples that he was going to go to a cross, Peter told him this would never happen on his watch. He would never let anything happen to Jesus. And Jesus cursed him for it. Get behind me, you devil. How dare you try to take me from my mission. Same thing happened in the garden. Peter drew a sword to defend his Lord. Jesus told him to put it away. He even healed the guard that he had cut. You will not distract me from my mission, Peter. See, Jesus was here to take on the power of hell. He started by taking on the demons that destroyed the lives of individuals. <coughs> he confronted the religious authorities that were there. They were trying to get in the way of people meeting God. Jesus wasn't going to let that happen. And yes, he even had to ignore the wishes of his own family and his own friends when it came to what his mission was going to be. And he did it for you. They were trying to save him from the cross, but he chose the cross to save us. He chose the cross so that anyone who puts their faith in him would have an eternal reward would have salvation. He chose moments of discomfort so that he could fulfill an eternal promise to each of you. And we should be thankful he did. So yes, family matters. And the mission of Jesus was to expand the definition of family to all the world so that all of us who believe in him might understand that you are my brothers from other mothers, and you are my sisters from other misters. We are, in Christ, one family. We've all been brought in. We've all been adopted into the family of God. We're not inviting you into a religion. We're inviting you to get to know Jesus. You know, I said this was all started by a by a campaign fund uh, that's housed in Kansas. And lately I've been a little mad at Kansas. First off, we were coming back from snow skiing. And did you know to get across Kansas, it takes like nine hours of driving? It's terrible, terrible. And not only that, um, I don't know if our police officer is watching in the lobby, but 
Not only that, but a police officer told me that I wasn't allowed to go 20 over on my way back, which was, which I don't know, it didn't seem right to me, but um, I know, I'm a bad example for my kids, but again, it was nine hours across Kansas. We'll see what becomes of the campaign, but what I want you to be is thoroughly equipped. Thoroughly equipped, because when things happen in culture, when Jesus, the church, when, when it comes up in culture, we, we want you to, to be ready, to give a reason for the hope that you have. That's all that, that Peter asked you to do in one of his letters. Give the reason for the hope that you have. That, that's your simple testimony.